I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. Good evening, everyone, and thank you all for coming. I should just say, if if there is a bell goes off, it's not a fire alarm. However, it will mean that uh, our host, Nikki Morgan, has to uh, run downstairs and uh, carry out the business of democracy. Uh, so let's hope that that doesn't let's hope that doesn't happen. A year ago, Britain voted to leave the European Union. Um, there were many, many reasons why the vote went the way it did, but the reason the vote was happening in the first place, and a large part of of, of why it went the way it did, was public concern about immigration, um, and in particular the way that despite politicians' endless promises to reduce the numbers, uh, the, the, there was a sort of perception that you know, that we, we just couldn't get a handle on this problem and something needed to be done. Um, we've chosen immigration as the topic of today's debate, um, which we are recording for a special CapEx podcast. So if you're asking a question um, and I repeat it, it's not because I can't hear you, it's just because we need to get it on the, on the audio. Um, We've chosen immigration as the topic tonight because it's at the heart of many of the thorniest issues in British politics. Do we prioritise membership of the single market or prioritise controlling our borders? Do immigrants' social and economic contributions outweigh the strain on public services and traditional communities? Why would uh, firms train up British workers or give them decent pay rises when they can get better, cheaper workers for abroad? What, what I'm saying, I guess, is the, the debate about immigration is, is, is in, a, in many ways about the kind of country we, we want to be. Um, and I'm delighted that in debating the pros and cons, we have a genuinely all-star panel. Uh, Nikki Morgan is the former education secretary and one of the most prominent and passionate uh, conservative remainers. Uh, Garvin Walsh is a columnist for Conservative Home and CEO of Brexit Analytics. Uh, he's filling in for Ian Birrell, who was sent by his employers to, to Iraq, then told us he'd be back from Iraq, but then had to go to, off to Africa. So it's a, it's a t- tough and slightly dangerous life being a journalist. Um, on the other side is uh, Sundar Katwala, who is, was the General Secretary of the Fabian Society and is now Director of British Future, a non-partisan think tank focusing on issues of identity and integration, which I urge you to follow because it publishes some wonderful things. And um, Eric Kaufman is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College and author of the forthcoming book, White Shift, Immigration, Populism and the Myth of Majority Decline. So as mentioned, we're going to, uh, in, in honour of where we are uh, today, Partly, we're going to be adopting a debate format. However, there will still hopefully be time for questions from the audience uh, at the end to any and all of our panelists. And to that end, I will be using this rather delightful 
little device <laughs> to try to uh, ch chivvy them along if they exceed their, their allotted time limit. Um, so the motion is uh, that this House believes Britain should open its borders after it leaves the EU, which uh, for me also sort of encompasses keep them open or indeed not leave the EU at all, which might be the position of at least one person sitting on my right and perhaps in the audience. So um, what I'd like to do, um, as is traditional, is to just take a quick vote. Uh, who at this stage is sort of leaning towards the the sort of more open versus less less open who would who would who would be with Nikki and Garvin that they think that immigration is a is is broadly a good thing and we need to keep it or even increase it okay and who would be on the other side of the fence so i'm sensing a few abstainers um out of curiosity uh can i also ask who voted remain in the uh brexit referendum and who voted leave? So interestingly, unscientifically, there looks to be about a hundred percent overlap <laughs> in those in those two groups. But we'll see we'll see whether tonight's debate can uh, change opinions at all. And with that, I hand over to Nikki Morgan. Well, Robert, thank you very much uh, indeed uh, for the invitation to be here this evening to open the case uh, for uh, this house believes uh, Britain should open its borders after it leaves the uh, European Union. And of course, the advantage of speaking first uh, is that I can define uh, the motion um, and, uh, and then those who are speaking afterwards can obviously disagree and seek uh, new definitions. And apologies if the bell does ring. Um, it's rather unusual so far. We're actually having votes at the moment, uh, which is a bit of a novel experience so far in this uh, parliament. So if you're disagreeing with what I'm saying, you might say that you're saved by, uh, by the bell if you haven't been saved by Roberts. A handy little bell that he has there. Um, I wanted to just read you a couple of things from the white paper that the government published uh, earlier on this year about us leaving the European Union. In the foreword, the Prime Minister says, uh, she talks about what's going to happen, then she says, you know, we will not be merely forming a new partnership with Europe, but building a stronger, fairer, more global Britain too. In his preface, David Davis talks about 12 uh, areas that the Prime Minister talked about at the Lancaster House speech, one of those being controlling immigration. And then on the chapter about controlling immigration, it starts, I'm going to read, we will remain an open and tolerant country and one that recognises the valuable contribution migrants make to our society and welcomes those with the skills and expertise to make our nation better still. But in future, we must ensure we can control the number of people coming to the UK from the EU. And of course, we're debating the EU tonight, but there are many, many people who come to this country from outside the European Union. And I'm approaching, and I think that has cause to concern, and that's partly behind uh, some of the vote uh, last June. And I'm speaking this evening both, as you say, Robert, as a, a passionate, a former Remain campaigner, because I do accept that we're going to be leaving uh, the European Union as of March, April 2019. We won't be members of the EU in the same way. Uh, but I stand by the campaign that I was proud to be part of last year, although ultimately uh, unsuccessful. But I'm also here speaking as a constituency member of parliament. And I represent Loughborough, just north of Leicester, a fairly diverse community. Leicester, of course, being the first majority non-white city uh, in this country. And I represent, um, as an MP, uh, obviously both a, a large university, but also a population which requires a lot of immigration casework. And so I see at first hand how our current immigration system works and how it's changed in the course of the past seven years. I think the first thing to say is that uh, immigration 
and the debate about controlling our borders is not new. But what did change was, I think, in the course of the early part of this century, a feeling that uh, many people had arrived and many people felt their communities and their country were changing and they didn't remember being asked permission or having that debated. In fact, I was a candidate in Loughborough in 2005 at the general election and immigration was one of the words that Michael Howard uh, used at the time, the leader of the Conservative Party. Um, and I was called a racist in Loughborough Market for raising the issue of immigration or rather my party raising it. But the point is, if you don't talk about something, if you try to say that actually talking about this is Little Englander or xenophobic, eventually it pops up in another way, and I think a rather um, unpleasant populist way, as we have seen in some of the debates. Initially, to flip it on its head, when I was campaigning on the uh, EU referendum last year, again in Loughborough Market, I was called a racist for actually saying uh, that uh, I thought that actually uh, immigration brings great benefits to this country and to my uh, constituency uh, and somebody who was um, not standing up for the interests of this country but actually I think I very much am. So in talking about open borders that doesn't mean uncontrolled immigration. It doesn't mean letting anyone who wants to come here come to this country and I was chairing a, a meeting yesterday of businesses in the East Midlands talking very much about the skills needs they have, the skill shortages they potentially face, the concerns about changing immigration policy. And I think one of the businesses got it absolutely right, but he said it's not the issue of immigration that people feel uh, concerned about, it's the fact that people, feel, uh, people are coming here uh, without working and then being uh, potentially uh, available to or being able to claim uh, benefits. Now, there's lots of truths and untruths about that particular statement. If you unpack it, there's no point as a politician pretending that people don't have concerns and worries, as I say. You try to stop debate about something, it will come up eventually, uh, and uh, it's better that we as politicians confront that and confront people's concerns uh, and uh, talk about their issues. As I say, immigration is not new. People have been coming to this country for many, many hundreds of years, bringing their skills, uh, bringing their talents, and making this country, I think, uh, the fantastic country that it is, and often very diverse and a real melting pot. And I point at Leicester. In my own constituency, I have a lot of people who came to Loughborough from India and from Bangladesh, often to work in the, um, uh, the uh, garment uh, industry and the weaving uh, industry. The second point I would make is immigration is needed. I think it would be a huge mistake, um, leaving aside the benefits for our society, if we were to ignore the voice of both business but also others, for example, the higher education sector, uh, who say that actually they do need to recruit people from uh, overseas. Uh, is the balance right? Can the system be controlled? Can we arrive at a visa system or some other whereby actually uh, people are coming here to fill uh, the skills gaps that are uh, uh, need or that are obvious? Then yes, of course, that can be uh, that, can, that sort of system can be arrived at. Uh, but look at our NHS and our social care. Fifty thousand people from overseas working in our NHS. Um, if you add in social care, it's 80,000. I think it was my colleague Sarah Wollaston who said uh, in the referendum debate last year uh, that when people complain about pressure from immigration on the health services, actually the immigrant is more likely often to be in front of you, treating you, than they are to be in front of you in, uh, in the queue. Uh, I represent, as I say, a large university, and it relies on talent from overseas, both in terms of academics, but also in terms of students. Uh, and uh, I personally have made it very clear my view that I don't think students should be in the migration 
numbers, higher education is one of our most successful export industries, uh, and therefore, actually, I know when I talk to people in my local area, we're talking about concerns about immigration, they're not thinking about the students at the university. They might well be thinking of others. Uh, and the final thing is that um, immigration does, though, need to be controlled. And uh, I would say, in answer to, uh, to those who want to completely open action borders, actually what people in my constituency uh, want, based on the conversations that I've had with them, they want, they want the, the, the immigration system, UK borders, to know who is coming here, how long they're coming here, why they're coming here, and when their time here is potentially meant to be up, but actually they go home or they're asked to reapply for the permission to stay here. And that wasn't happening in 2010 when this government took office. It is happening much, much more now. I can see from my casework how the immigration system has been tightened up, how many of the abuses that were taking place no longer exist, the loopholes no longer uh, exist, and how, as I say, uh, much more uh, checking and uh, paperwork is absolutely uh, needed. But the other thing we're going to talk about immigration, and perhaps it's not for tonight, but it's for the government to lead when we get to having an immigration bill coming forward before Parliament, is the importance of community cohesion and integration. And those are words that we haven't really heard in the immigration debate. I think that's often what people uh, feel uh, most uh, concerned about, is the fact that actually see, as I say, countries and communities are changing. They don't remember being asked about those changes. Uh, and they are concerned that there are communities, and I am concerned that there are often communities, uh, particularly women, who are not integrated as they should be uh, and I was a Secretary of State who had to talk a lot about fundamental British values uh, when I was in the Education Department following the issues around, obviously, uh, Birmingham. Uh, and so I would say that immigration is a good for our country. It helps us to grow our economy. It helps us to be open. Uh, we have uh, contacts with countries around the world, uh, and we must not cut ourselves off in our post-Brexit, uh, in our post-EU post membership uh, future. And therefore, I would argue uh, that yes, we should have open borders, but that means we should have control of our borders. And I hope that you will support this side of the debate tonight. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Nikki. And now, um, Sunder. Thank, thank, thanks very much um, for the invitation. Um, like Nikki Morgan, I believe immigration's been good for Britain. And I have to think that I wouldn't be here without it myself. Um, if you want to go back to the very beginning, I was born British in a hospital in Doncaster, Yorkshire on a bright April day um, in 1974. Three decades earlier, my dad had been born 4,000 miles away in Baroda in the state of Gujarat in India. He'd been born British too, three years before Indian independence. He became a citizen of the Indian Republic, you know, before his fourth birthday, but he's become British again since then. And that's because it was the Whitson Bank holiday in 1968, having completed his medical studies, worked for a summer on the Indian railways as a doctor. He got on a plane to Heathrow to come and work in England. This was exactly a fortnight after Enoch Powell had made a rather infamously famous speech about immigration. So maybe the speech wasn't as well reported in Gujarat as Enoch wanted, because dad came anyway. And he was coming to join about a million or more um, Commonwealth migrants who were in Britain by that time. And that's why Enoch uh, back then was very clear. His priority wasn't curbing the inflow anymore. It was how urgently Britain could persuade most of those already here 
that it was time for them to return home. And Enoch had, actually, an unusual ally in this, in this specific case. My granddad, also called Sunder, he came over to England and he put a pretty generous repatriation package on the table. He said to my dad, um, I could set you up with a surgery at home. And um, I started to make plans to arrange your marriage as well. And, uh, you know, what do you think of that? And uh, my dad decided not to go with the offer in the end. By then, he'd met my mother, a nurse who hailed from County Cork in Southern Ireland. Now, Cork, I don't need to tell you, definitely wasn't British by the time <laughs> she was born there in the 1940s. The funny thing, though, is she didn't need to or have a passport when she got on the ferry from Cork to, to Holyhead um, before taking a bus south to Portsmouth to start to train as a nurse. Um, she had a one-way ticket. The ticket guard looked at I suppose you're coming here as an immigrant, he said to her. She thought, well, I suppose I am. I'm training as a nurse. She's never become a British citizen. It hasn't stopped her voting in uh, 15 general elections and two referendums. We've never really admitted that the Irish uh, became a foreign country in our law. So that, that's my family history, and that's our national story too. I'm a child of the post-war legacy of empire, commonwealth. I'm a child of the NHS that my mum and dad came here to work for. So I will speak up for the contribution that immigration and integration have made to making Britain what it is today and to making sure our future is, should be, as an inclusive and welcoming society. So in this time of political volatility, should I cross the floor, join that side of the house after Brexit, Britain should open its borders? I'm not going to, um, because I think after Brexit, Britain should open its borders, risks fatally misunderstanding the core challenge for those of us who want to make a positive case that immigration can make to our country about what we need to do now. I'm really clear about what the priority should be now. It's got to be to rebuild public confidence in the contribution that migration and integration, when we get it right, can make to this country. So I don't think being pro-immigration is about always trying to maximise the amount of immigration we have. If net migration's a quarter of a million, why isn't it half a million or a million? If we had European free movement within the European Union, why don't we have global free movement when we're out of it? I think that is kind of missing what this moment is about and what we need to do. We need to do lots of the things that Nikki just spoke about. Defend the contribution immigration makes to our economy and our public services. Treat people who come to contribute to our society fairly, um, as well as being fair to those here they come to join. Uphold the international obligations, the treaties we signed, refugee protection, the commitments we've got to those who've come here. But to do those things now, there's something else we've got to do. We've got to understand what's gone wrong, and we've got to use this reset moment of Brexit to make sure we start to put that right. And I think we can explain what's gone wrong quite simply. There's been a real loss of public confidence in how governments have managed migration to this country over the last couple of decades. And it isn't difficult to understand why. The Labour government didn't predict, didn't prepare for, or didn't respond effectively to the largest wave of migration in British history after the expansion of the European Union eastwards in 2004. After that had happened, their Conservative-led successors came to power in 2010, and they said, we will get those numbers right down for you. But the numbers rose instead, and so every single quarter, there was proof that the government had made a promise it couldn't keep, and that it didn't have a grip on what it was trying to do. And if you look at the comparative data, Britain is now at the bottom of the league for confidence in how governments handle immigration. So the public expects to see some changes to immigration policy 
after Brexit. But I want to be really clear that I think people think the politicians dropped the ball. They don't blame the people they've met. They don't blame the polls they work with or the parents at the school gate who've come to this country. Britain has got a racist fringe and we need to make sure that group isn't emboldened by what's going on. This is not a nation of xenophobes. I think people are sceptical about the pace and scale of immigration and how we've handled it in the last few years. But they also recognise the gains that migration can bring to Britain. So it's time to rebuild that confidence. If we don't do that, we won't have the support and the public support and the political permission we need for Britain to remain the internationalist, outward-looking country that the other side has spoken about and that I think we want to. If we don't rebuild that confidence, there'll be no point sending business leaders onto television to try and win an argument about immigration with statistics about the net contribution to GDP. If people don't think we've got a system that works, they're never going to believe the numbers that system produces. So for those reasons, I think we should change the policy, the free movement rules after Brexit. That should be about changing the future policy. The only legal or ethical or practical thing to do for the three million Europeans here was tell them much sooner, tell them the day after the referendum, not a year later, that they're welcome to stay and carry on with their lives. Changing the policy in future absolutely shouldn't mean retrospective changes to people here. But when we've got that decision right, we should change the free movement rules after Brexit. When we think about the right immigration system for Britain, very few people would say it should be a point of principle that our immigration system should prefer Spaniards and Bulgarians to Indians or South Africans when they want to come to this country. There is, I think, a principled argument for European free movement, and it's this. Europeans should prefer Europeans because we're all citizens of Europe. That's a popular argument, a popular enough argument, in 27 other countries in the European Union where it commands a majority. That's because in those countries, most people combine their national identity with a reasonably strong sense of European identity and European citizenship. So people in Europe, when you talk to them, often make a distinction between free movement and immigration and say these are different things. If you have a strong European identity, freedom of movement is a sort of hybrid category. It's like internal mobility within a country, like coming from Newcastle to London, as much as migration across borders. But the argument that free movement isn't immigration has never made much sense in Britain. And that goes back a long way. It goes back to being an island. It goes back to, you know, Henry VIII wanting a divorce and starting Brexit when he launched the Church of England. So only 15% of people in this country have a European identity, actually. So that's the foundational reason why we always had a different, somewhat thinner, somewhat more transactional idea of what the club membership of Europe was about. So the British case for European free movement is much more tactical. It's part of a package. It's a price worth paying if we want a trade deal. But we can't only talk about the trade-off with the economy. We've got to build a stronger consensus here on the right immigration for Britain before we go and take part in those talks. And if we do that, if we have the debate here, there's much more potential, I think, for common ground on the issues that Nikki was talking about. Everyone agrees, I think, that the Europeans here should stay. Very few people want to reduce student migration or skilled migration from within Europe or outside Europe. That's somewhere where most Leave voters agree with most Remain voters. That's why the one-size-fits-all policies of Theresa May's government over this last year, I think, have misunderstood how people think about immigration being different. But two-thirds of people think we should control the scale and pace of low-skilled and semi-skilled immigration. And here, most Remain voters, even though they voted on the Remain side, agree with the Leave voters. People don't want to reduce the number of people who come into working care homes. They know that we need some low-skilled 
and semi-skilled uh, immigration. Fruit needs picking, and there might always not be people to do those jobs. But they think the level and pace of that low-skilled immigration should be something that is part of our political system, as well as about what people who want to come to this country think. So people do want control there. They do want a stronger, quicker commitment than they saw in the last 10 years to ensuring the local impacts are better managed on public services and housing. And they do want to see a greater visible effort to invest in skills and training here in those sectors that have now become most dependent on migrant labour alongside bringing in the skills that are needed to fill the gap in the health service uh, or in key sectors of the economy. So there's a chance to build a consensus on a balanced system. But my final point is the immigration system has always been, the immigration debate has always been much more about much more than immigration. It's been about integration. It's been about community cohesion. It's been about the sense of the country we are. And we need to rebuild that too. And Britain in 2017, whichever side of that argument you were on, whichever side of the election you were on, we've got to agree this is a more anxious, a more fragmented, a more divided country than any of us want it to be. So my question, in a way, to my fellow liberals on the other side is, is it time now to polarise or to depolarise the way we talk about identity and immigration integration in this country? And some feel it's got to be a moment to polarise those debates. I think there's a strong liberal instinct that now the argument started, let's fight back, let's mobilise our tribe. Donald Trump looks like he's starting a culture war. Well, let's engage in it and make sure we win it. And that's because the EU referendum divided the country between university cities and towns and uh, smaller places um, that have felt the change of differently by class across the generations. Because of that surprise result, overnight, there was a redistribution of optimism and pessimism, of fear and anger between different parts of the country. I want my country back was something we were used to hearing from Nigel Farage and UKIP. Suddenly in the streets of Cambridge and North London, people were saying, I want my country back. <laughs> I'm going to get angry now. So some people, I think, on that side of the debate are thinking, if the Eurosceptic spent 40 years reversing a referendum, why are we being asked to give up in year one or two? And if you've got the stamina for the next 40 years, you're welcome to try. But I think quite a lot of us think it's got to be time for more people to get out of the referendum trenches and to work out how to work together to make the biggest thing our country's done for 50 years work. And when you look across the Atlantic to Donald Trump's America, you see a society in which too many people seem to be enjoying a debate of mutual polarisation. Both sides ratchet up the heat. Both sides ratchet up the anger. And it gets more heated up. I'd much rather we work to defuse a culture war than to fight one. So my main point tonight is it's time for much less shouting and much more listening in the immigration debate. After Brexit, it isn't the time for Britain to throw open the borders. We've got to bridge the divisions at home first. Use this reset moment well. Rebuild confidence in how we manage immigration and integration in this country. Invest in an immigration system that works, but invest time in engaging the public themselves in how we're going to strike these balances between the pressures and gains of immigration. It's not by throwing open the borders. It's by rebuilding public support in managing immigration and integration well after Brexit that we'll get the support we need for Britain to remain the inclusive, confident, welcoming country that people across this debate should want uh, us. I don't think being compared to Donald Trump was quite what uh, <laughs> those on this side were, were expecting. Um, I, I, I should say, uh, Sunday did run, run slightly over, but, um, but Nikki, ran, uh, Nikki kept admirably to her, to her time. So, so, so points off for that side in, in the sort of imaginary system in my head. Um, and now, now to respond to that, um, 
Govan Walsh. Thank you, thank you, Rob. And I think um, what you've done is an amazing feat of chairmanship by organising this debate in increasing level of immigrants, if immigrants is a word. So while while um, Sundar has said that you know his parents were born British or one of them was and and then immigrated to the UK, but he himself was a product product of immigration, I can go one better. I actually am an immigrant. I came here um, to study. And I suspect that Eric can go even further, <laughs> uh, having come here even more recently than I did. If it helps, my mother's from New Zealand. So. <laughs> um, I think that messes up the sort of schedule, but um, we'll bear that in mind. As, uh, um, and I, cu I couldn't help, um, when listening to, listening to um, Sundar's speech, of thinking of the old joke about a restaurant in which someone says, the food here is absolutely terrible. And it comes in such small portions. <laughs> so, so Sundar basically said the opposite. said, the food is absolutely delicious, but we don't want really any more of it. There's no consensus for any more of this lovely, lovely food. I have just had enough. We are, we are full. And he, he gave us a, an argument about um, the public consensus and politicians and what happened. And he did it um, as if the public consensus is something that sort of happens out of the blue. But I, I would suggest that it's not something that happens out of the blue. It's something that we all, certainly all of us on, on, on the panel, um, but probably quite a lot of you in the audience also should take some responsibility for. You're part of the public consensus. You are the public. These things don't just happen out of nowhere, but they're decisions that we make about the country ourselves. We talk about them with each other and we come up with, um, we come up with our views based on what we think is happening, and even occasionally based on what actually is happening. And one of the things that actually is happening and has happened in the last, um, you know, 10, 10, 15 years has indeed been a significant increase in the number of um, immigrants in the UK, not only from the EU, but also from outside the EU. One of the big reasons that happening, that's happening is because travel is getting a lot cheaper. I have a friend um, who came to New Zealand about 20 years ago, uh, came, sorry, came from New Zealand uh, about 20 years ago, and he, he had to save up about six months' salary just to buy the plane ticket to travel uh, from, from New Zealand. Now, you have an economy flight from New Zealand is about five or 600 quid on, on a good day. Um, and even if New Zealand uh, ever falls into recession, I don't think that's going to be a year's salary there. Um, it's just become so much more easy to move, so much more easy to maintain connections to your family um, through Skype, through the the reducing costs of communication than it used to be. Um, even I have um, an aunt, I have aunts who moved to America, you know, 60 years ago from Ireland. And they, um, for them, it was basically goodbye. You went, you might write letters, um, and you would then um, maybe, if you were lucky, come and visit once or twice um, the fam family home. Now it's a much more fluid um, kind of thing. And we need to start thinking about how we design immigration systems and cultures and societies for this much more, more fluid world. It's not about so much saying, I, I grew up here, I moved to some other place, and that's it. The reality is people move back and forth. People work um, in different countries for, for a while, then they, move, then they move somewhere else. We're already seeing, partly because of the depreciation of the pound uh, following the Brexit vote, uh, partly, um, I'm sorry to say, by some of the political debate that's happened since the vote, um, a reduction in um, immigration from the EU, 
because people can say, well, uh, people seem to be a bit hostile over here, and now that the pound's fallen, I don't need to travel all the way over to Britain to get a job at a building site. I can just pop, a, pop across the, the border to Germany from Poland and drive home at the weekend. These are parts of the economic and social phenomena that are happening and are going to happen in lots of different and fairly unpredict unpredictable ways. Um, but to, to sort of try and ground, ground the debate in uh, a few things um, that might be called facts, um, unfashionable as they are in 2017. Um, between 2014 and 2004, uh, EU migrants to the UK contributed net 40 billion to the exchequer. Um, according to the same um, statistical study, um, the native British population contributed minus 671 billion pounds to the exchequer. This is chiefly because, the, because of an aging population. It's not that particularly Brits are especially lazy. It's also, to a certain extent, a selection effect. Um, there are plenty of lazy people in Poland, but being lazy, they stay there. <laughs> Um, one, of the one of the effects of immigration is, uh, is that, by definition, it tends to attract uh, um, hard-working and more ambitious people who, who go places. Um, or even if they're retiring places, they tend to be the more mobile and active and innovative people because the less innovative people tend, tend to stay where they are. That's um, just, you know, a, a, fact of, a, fact, a fact of mobility. And as we get, get used to this kind of thing, this is where political leadership is important. Because um, Sundar said the Labour government didn't prepare, and I'm quite happy to attack um, the Labour, Labour governments on, um, on almost anything. Um, but, and there is a case to say that they didn't prepare to make an adjustment in um, and the availability of public services, and they were, to a certain extent, take, taken aback. But this is also a little bit of a red herring, because people sometimes say, oh, well, um, if we had applied transitional controls, things would be different. Uh, these, are, these, are, these were rules that the EU allowed you to apply for so new member states wouldn't be allowed to come and be employed in, um, in the other countries of the EU immediately after they had um, those, those countries had joined. But although you weren't allowed to be employed in these other countries, you were allowed to establish a business. You were allowed to be self-employed. And what Germany found when they changed, when their transitional controls lapsed, was they thought, oh, we're now going to get a whole load of people coming in um, without transitional controls. What they found instead was that a lot of the self-employed people were already there and some of them just recalibrated. And in a flexible labor market like ours, um, the difference between employment and self-employment isn't as big as it might be in a more regulated labor market like, like Germany's, where there's a greater influence, emphasis on having qualifications, especially to do um, trades rather than, rather than professions. Um, and so we, in a, in a sense, what labor did really fail to do, though, was they failed, especially after Tony Blair um, left office, to make an argument for the policy they were actually advocating. Because they were advocating a policy of saying, let's allow everyone from EU, um, the new EU member states to come here and um, find work because they thought that was the right thing to do. They thought it was what our economy needed. Um, I think it is actually what our economy needed for long-term reasons. We're, 
our labor force is shrinking and we need to find more, way, more people to do the jobs that need to be done. If we didn't have immigrants to do the jobs, those jobs wouldn't actually occur. Uh, they would probably occur somewhere else and we'd import the goods that people produced or uh, we'd have slightly different ways of organizing bar, bar, bars and cafes. Uh, as it happens, there isn't a very large number of um, unemployed people um, ready to work. We have problems to do with deindustrialization that leave a lot of, that have left a lot of people um, with mental health difficulties, that have a lot of people who are older and partially disabled and on disability benefit. Those people are not ready to do the kinds of labor-intensive, um, semi-skilled, unskilled jobs that young immigrants have come, come here to do. Um, there was an unfortunate moment in the recent election campaign where someone, I'm afraid, on my own side had um, suggested that disabled people do um, farm work. Um, we don't have to think about that very long to realize that's not a terribly practical um, proposition. Um, we, what, we need, what we need to do, we're quite right, Sundar, to say we need a more honest and um, consensus-building conversation. And we need to be able to talk about immigration. But we've been talking about immigration for about, um, at least since 2005. That, that campaign uh, when Nikki was um, um, taking to the streets of Loughborough, I was working in Conservative Central Office. And one of our slogans was, um, it's not racist to talk about immigration. Um, and it isn't necessarily racist to talk about immigration. I'm not entirely com comfortable about some of the slogans that we used um, during that campaign. Um, what we, what we didn't do was talk about immigration in a way that dealt with the complexity. What we did instead was we um, promised that we could uh, solve certain problems by reducing immigration when those problems weren't actually caused by external migration. Um, it is quite true that people move around and they move around the EU, they also move around Britain in quite large numbers. And this leads to mismatches between supply and demand for public services. And it's quite right that we should have um, systems of um, public service provision that take into account these population movements. We also need to take, find ways, um, particularly to ensure that more young people can afford houses. And part of the solution to that involves building houses. But part of the solution to building houses also involves having people to actually construct the houses. It's no use to say, we need to build lots of houses and then not let anybody in um, um, to construct them. And it isn't a problem of lack of skills. Um, something about 30% of builders in the London area are due to retire in the next five years. There will be nobody to replace them unless we um, have some form of um, immigration. Because one of the things that happens is that immigrants are less connected to the social networks of the society they move into. So they go into the labor market at a lower level. Equivalent people in the UK are, because our economy has been so successful, getting jobs, paying more, and uh, at, higher, at higher skill levels that reflect their qualifications. Uh, unless we find some way of... Um, oh my, how much time do I have? About two or three minutes. Two or three minutes, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, say, I'm going to, I'm going to say something constructive, um, I hope. And in the... Um, as we work out and as we try and negotiate um, uh, deal with the European Union, and as we try and have an immigration policy, um, I'm going to stay out of the question of what it affects, whether it affects our trade policy for now, though you can ask me about that if you want. Um, let's just think about how we have a simple that is how, how we have a system that is simple, 
how we have a system that is not bureaucratic, how we have a system that recognizes that people, first of all, that people move jobs, um, that they don't necessarily have, um, it doesn't quite work to say you must have a job offer before you, you come here, because a lot of people end up doing different jobs from the one they came. People move, they advance, they get skills, and as a result, they become much more, um, much more of a contributor to the economy because they have the freedom to, to change jobs. Um, the Swiss, for example, have a system where um, if you're from a certain, certain countries, you can apply to have a work permit to look for work. Everybody has to have a work permit, but they get them under, under those, under those con conditions. You don't have a complicated central planning system that says, well, we need exactly 43,000 plumbers this year, we need 27,000 nurses, we need um, 1,100 radi radio radiographers, because no one can really actually plan the workforce in that kind of way. We need a system with flexibility. We need a system that doesn't involve people filling in thousands and thousands of forms to change, um, to change employment or to seek permission or to um, pay the very large fees the Home Office demands of people if they're to extend their stay beyond three years. Um, if, I was not, if I was from India instead of Ireland and had to um, pay um, several thousand pounds to extend my stay after I become a student, I probably wouldn't be here. Um, now, some of you may say good riddance, <laughs> but um, I, what's certainly true is all the taxes I, ha I have paid to the um, British Exchequer wouldn't have been paid. Um, that money would have had to have come from somewhere mm -hmm. else. And that will be true for lots of the other people who have been expensively and well-educated um, by, the, by the British system. So as we work out what immigration system we have, we need to, we need to remember that immigrants don't, that we don't choose the immigrants that come here. Uh, the immigrants choose the countries they go to. Thank you, Govin. And now our final speaker. Hi, and from my voice you'll be able to tell I too am an immigrant uh, Canada. And, and um, like Sunder here, I also have a kind of cosmopolitan background. I've got a Chinese grandmother and a Latin American grandmother. Um, but actually, I think what's going to be a bigger issue is not so much people like Sunder and I going forward. Um, the question is going to be more revolving around the majority ethnic groups, um, the white British group. Uh, because I think if, if we look at the Trump phenomenon, if we look at Brexit, and I'm a political scientist and I crunch a lot of these numbers, if we look at the uh, Freedom Party in Austria, these are primarily cultural phenomena. The consensus position in the academic literature really is that votes for populist right parties is really about immigration, which is primarily about cultural uh, anxiety and not about personal economic circumstance. So we have to actually get away from just talking about economics and start to talk about some of these cultural anxieties. Now, I agree that immigration does bring dynamism and it's good for the economy to a point. I think it is good for the economy, so I would argue against those who think it's a negative. However, I think essentially we have to balance the economic good that immigration brings against the cultural costs that it uh, exerts, I guess you would say, on the host society. Um, because really the problem in a way is that people are not rational calculators. They form attachments to places, to ethnic groups, uh, to nations. And so pace of change then has to be regulated, um, calibrated in a way to the rate that uh, people are comfortable with. Some people are comfortable with a fast rate of change. Some people are comfortable with a very slow rate of change. I think the fairest 
settlement is to adjudicate between those two and come up with a number that reflects the middle ground in society. And I, I've done some work recently with Simon Hicks and Thomas Leeper at the London School of Economics. The average uh, British person wants roughly 120,000 people to enter the country each year. When told that there's a, a cost, 5% of their personal income, uh, to cut the numbers to zero or, or no cost at all if, if the numbers remain the same, what we see is actually people's tolerance for higher numbers goes up, but it doesn't go up as much as you would think. It goes up to maybe 175,000, still below the rate we have now. So even if there is a cost, there are a lot of people in the country willing to pay that cost to reduce numbers. And I think in a democratic society, we have to listen to the full range of opinion. And I think that gets us to the point that I wanna make, which is really a philosophical point, and it goes back to uh, somebody called Isaiah Berlin, who's a well-known um, uh, British philosopher, who had this distinction between what he called negative liberty and positive liberty. So for negative liberty, that's really about non-interference and a sphere of private liberty that people should enjoy. Positive liberty, however, is something he was quite critical of. He said a lot of liberals conflated that negative liberty not to interfere, uh, to, to allow people their freedom, with positive liberty, which is about an ideal that they wanted people to sign up to, an ideal of autonomy, desire to raise the ignorant to virtue, the desire to sort of move people away from what, what were seen as lesser passions to nobler, um, to nobler aims such as self-mastery, uh, autonomy, cosmopolitanism. And for Berlin, his argument was this was quote-unquote despotism, albeit by the wisest. So people are going to have different values, they're going to have different aims in life. It's not for us to say that certain values are nobler or higher than others. To say people who love diversity are better people than people who prefer homogeneity, the people who love change are better people than those who love continuity. Um, and so I think this was less the case with Nikki, but certainly with Garvin, there was a, a certain there was a tone there to suggest that embracing change and diversity is in some way a nobler thing, better thing to do than to say uh, embrace tradition and custom and ethnicity. And I think that's really where I would draw the distinction. I see a value in immigration, but I think definitely see a value in, in immigration. But I just think we need a balance, and we can't sort of we can't shut down those who have that more traditional orientation. So I can, you can take two statements here from something called the British Value Survey, which is run by a firm called Cultural Dynamics, and they ask these questions each year to a sample of about 1,500 British people. The first one, quote, it says, I have a lot to learn from other cultures. By preference, I'd live somewhere surrounded by people of different ethnic, racial, and social backgrounds. Uh, second question, statement, I like surprises and I'm always looking for new things to do. I think it's important to do lots of things in life. Um, roughly speaking, only about a quarter of the British population endorse those two statements very strongly. And I think that's great. I do, I mean, I would hate to see a world where nobody endorsed those statements, but all I'm saying is it's a minority of the population. And David Goodhart talks about <coughs> somewheres and anywheres, and this anywhere group who are uh, embrace diversity, change, novelty, and so on. Uh, it's an important and large group in the population whose voice needs to be heard, but whose voice I don't think can dominate the conversation. I think we need to have a middle ground. Um, in particular, we know from social psychology that a very large part of how people look at the world politically is 
hereditary and or has to do with personal upbringing and background. And people are hard, some people score high on what is called a big five personality trait, which is called openness. Uh, others score low on it. That is something that's relatively hardwired into people across the life course. Similarly, with a lot of deeply held cultural values, again, this preference for change over preference for security is something that is deeply rooted in a lot of people's worldviews and outlooks. Uh, I think that certainly if liberals want to try and change that through civil society action, that's great, that's fine. But ultimately, when it comes to policy, you have to take people's preferences as given and should not try and engage in, I think, what Berlin would call that positive liberalism uh, of trying to sort of uh, push a certain set of values on a population which it doesn't fundamentally believe in. I don't say it doesn't. The population is divided, so you have a quarter of the population that strongly believes in embracing diversity. Now, that's not to say diversity is bad. I mean, I think, first of all, everyone must tolerate diversity because otherwise you don't have a liberal society where people can differ and exchange views. But there's a big difference between tolerating diversity and embracing or enjoying or preferring diversity. The second is more about positive liberty than negative liberty. And I think that's where I would draw the distinction. It's very important that people are free to express their chosen preference. Uh, and the goal of the society really should be, I think, to adjudicate to find a balance between those positions. And I think if we try to get back to a situation where we're trying to tell people uh, what to think or to, to, to shut down as racist concern about immigration, I think we're into dangerous territory that's led to what we see with Trump in the U.S. and to some extent with Brexit as well. I would rather see the, the debate, as Nikki said, opened up so we allow a range of positions. And ultimately, I think the rate of immigration will come down a little bit because that's where people's preferences are. It's not going to be a closed door. It's not going to be an open door. Um, the economic arguments are important, but again, there are, there's a, a range of societies. We know that there are places like Japan, which is at one extreme, where it has a very aging population, um, and they're increasingly you know, trying to substitute for their, their aging problem. But Britain actually has a relatively, by Western standards, a relatively high total fertility rate, which is not that far off the replacement rate compared to Southern and Eastern Europe or East Asia. So I think to actually talk that problem up, no, 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 just, um, you're, just, you're just got a two-minute warning. Those are, those are real issues, but I just think you need to find a balance between the sort of cultural, yeah, not moving ahead of where people are culturally and combining that with the benefits of economic benefits. Thank you very much. And now in a, in a slight... Uh, it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Break from the normal debate uh, format. We'll open it up to questions from the floor, which I suspect may also give the panelists opportunities to take some pot shots at each other. Um, the standard question, but I, the standard uh, uh, thing, but I really do mean it. Please ask questions rather than giving us sort of 10-minute statements as to your uh, personal uh, history and, and beliefs on these issues. Um, I'm sure the, I'm sure the, you can kind of corner the panelists afterwards and and uh, or, uh, and, um, and and assess them. But we you know, we we need to try and fit in as many people as as possible. So um, yeah, would anyone like to to start things off? Um, so in the uh, with a jacket in the. So the question is: to, to, Does Europe feel more comfortable with free movement than we do? They they do with free movement, um, um, and but they have. Europeans and the British have very, very similar views of immigration, except views of immigration if you go to Central and Eastern Europe, where there's very little diversity, are much tougher. Northern and Western Europeans have very similar views, but Europeans are a bit ambivalent about whether to count free movement as immigration. That's different. This British immigration was different to the previous waves of immigration in three important ways. It was bigger, and that mattered. But there were two other differences that were as important. Most waves of immigration came to London, Birmingham, Manchester first and spread out slowly. This wave of immigration went everywhere on day one. Poles, Latvians, Czechs went everywhere. So London and Manchester got another wave of immigration and knew what to do about it. Merthyr Tidville and Boston Lincolnshire got their first very big wave. So that was an important, that was more like the sort of 1960s and 70s experience of other people. And so when that wasn't well handled, that was the issue. And I think European societies want to do the right thing in the refugee crisis, but actually aren't sure how well they'll do. And it's really, really important that you invest in the English language, the contact, and that you invest in people joining the society they've joined, not living on the outskirts of it with their own separate group. Um, and anything the other side, as it were, would, would disagree with in that? I, I don't think so. So next question. Um, yes, sir, in, in the front. Sorry. So the question is, is roughly speaking, about um, educate about skilled and unskilled labour competition from immigrants and whether the education system is doing enough. Which, as a former education secretary, <laughs> I'm sure you'll be happy to answer. I think the honest uh, truth is that after uh, seven years of a conservative stroke coalition uh, government, we are getting a lot better. Education standards are rising. The reforms that uh, Michael put in place, that I was pl- proud to carry on meaning that we have got 1.8 million more children in schools rated good or outstanding. Teaching is definitely uh, stronger, but there were always pockets of extremely good teaching and good schools, uh, and where um, those around the young people were aiming high and making sure that uh, all people weren't, weren't divided into least able and most able. Actually, it was about making sure that all young people were taught a good, knowledge-rich curriculum, and that is spread much more throughout the system now. Um, one of the things that I was proud to put in place was the careers and enterprise company to give young people more. We've, we've got more that we need to, to do on, on this and the right way to do it, which is about getting young people and their parents and those around them to think about what they're going to do early on 
not leaving it until after GCSEs or until the time they're about to uh, leave school and to go into, into college. Uh, but I think uh, somebody said on the panel that um, you know, this is a complex debate and to talk about uh, numbers of illegal immigrants along with numbers of unemployed, numbers of young people is, is almost to, to, to say you can substitute one group for the other. They're all very different. You're absolutely right to say that in the immigration debate, uh, we don't talk enough about um, illegal as opposed to legal, those who come here to seek asylum and refuge as opposed to those who are economic migrants who make a deliberate decision to, to, to move here. Whether, as Cinder says, they move here for a period of time, perhaps for a job or for an opportunity, and then they return home, or whether they come here with the intention of making their life here, uh, settling down, marrying, buying home, buying property, and investing uh, in, the, uh, in the country. Um, but again, of course, here part, what's illegal immigration? Are you talking about the people who have stowed away uh, in lorries, who have not been found, or, or who jump out on the M1, uh, and uh, will find ways of finding finding work. And you actually, you know, surprisingly resourceful, uh, having dealt with incredibly uncomfortable and dangerous conditions. Or are you talking about the person who was here perfectly legally, but actually when their paperwork ran out because of the nature of having settled down or having found uh, a job that they like doing, just decided that actually they wouldn't alert themselves to the authorities and the authorities, and that's what I meant when I say the system has got a lot better, because the, those sorts of cases I see far fewer of now after seven years of a government which has tightened up the system than I did back in 2010 uh, and 2011. But, so. but would you would you accept that just you know seeing school leavers in Loughborough feel that they are facing competition not just from their fellow school leavers down the road, but from from people around the world. I mean, isn't, isn't that Absolutely. A... Absolutely. I'm nice to say that there are young people have got to compete not just the best in this country, they've got to compete with the best in the world. And um, I think that's a separate debate from the one that we're having tonight. But again, one of the reasons I think that many people voiced a real fear and frustration last year was because they felt that actually uh, they were facing competition from globalization, from automation, from a changing workplace. And even if they were going to be okay, actually their children and grandchildren were going to find that actually life was very different. And you know, there are, there are these statistics about the fact that uh, what's it, 50% of jobs that are going to be done in the next 10 years haven't been even invented today. So you also ask, I think, uh, you haven't asked the question, but it is right to ask, is the education system uh, developing young people and giving them the skills they need, not just to be educated, or not just to be employed when they leave full-time education, but to be employed 40, 50 years hence, when the workplace will have continued to change, and are we doing enough as a country? And I would argue we need to do a lot more about helping people to learn and to gain skills right away throughout their working life. Okay, um, so so sorry, um, so next uh, next question. And can we uh, can we try so, so in the uh, in the in the red in the red tie? And so can we can we can we try to keep questions to one sentence, and we'll try and rattle through the. Okay, so two so two two part two part question. First is about um, well, there's the is well, Eric. Is, yeah. No, I, I actually agree with you. You make a good point that in a way, uh, and actually the survey work that we've done with, uh, that I've done with the, the Aussie um, <clears throat> shows very clearly that the typical Brexit voter actually uh, would prefer a higher. They would prefer more immigration from Europe from the EU than from outside the EU. So they would, and that's true across the British public. So actually the British public does have a preference for European over non-European immigration. It's not massive, but you're right. So in a way you could make the argument that 
uh, European immigrants would have been more assimilable. But you know, in a way, this is this gets to the Remain campaign. You know, why were they not at least thinking about some of these arguments, or at least have some kind of a, an argument about immigration? Instead, they were told to really not talk about it and divert it to Project Fear. So I, I, I can't say I disagree with. And would anyone like to come in on the reciprocity point that um, that we're losing by being? You know, that... Well, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and I think the point that um, Eric made about that I think you talked about the David Goodhart book about the, the the somewheres and the somewheres and the anywheres, isn't it? And I think that is a really important debate. I think it's partly generational uh, as well in terms of how uh, people see themselves, um, particularly younger people seeing themselves as that ability to travel. Uh, and to work overseas and to go where they want and to meet who they want and settle down with who they want. And that's uh, perhaps uh, different from an older generation who, who might define themselves uh, differently as well. And I think you're absolutely right to talk about reciprocity. I think there hasn't been probably enough, you know, in this debate um, about the, uh, the rights of EU citizens uh, living here. And uh, there are, I do get a number of emails, I'm sure others do engage in this debate, uh, who say, well, what about my rights that have been taken away, that right and that ability to travel and to be EU citizens? And I think um, it's, um, it's one of them, is it Eva Hofstadt, who has offered this ability for people to apply for EU citizenship uh, after, uh, after Brexit. And of course, it'd be fascinating if that were to come to pass, how many people would actually want to take that up now or in the future? I think there were two reasons why the reciprocity argument didn't really feature in the campaign. I think they looked at using it, well, we can go there too, isn't that the deal? And what they found was that the people who like the fact that people come here, um, who are already going to vote Remain, like the fact that they might go there too, the graduates and the students and the younger people, and the people who didn't like the fact that more people were coming here were thinking, well, I don't particularly want to go to Bulgaria or Romania myself, and so I'm not taking the deal. And I think people thought it was a people thought it was a, a, a very fair deal, actually, before the enlargement, Alfreda Zane Pet and so on, because you would have reciprocity with countries of similar levels of economic <coughs> development. But the, the sort of east to west movement was obviously going to be one way. But there's one other reason it doesn't work. So uh, three and a half million out of eight million people born abroad from uh, out of the world are European in Britain, and the other four and a half, so it's not quite half and half. Five million Brits live abroad, but actually only a million of them live in Europe, because mostly they've gone to countries they share the language with. So people would like some reciprocity maybe for young people and skills two ways with Europe, but they might particularly like reciprocity with the countries they're most likely to go to, which are actually Australia, Canada and um, uh, America. And so, but you could, have, you could have some deals on both of those sides if you weren't completely open to one or the other. Thanks very much. Um... Yeah, uh, next question. So, so the, que the question is how much of this is about reassurance of, to the public? Um, I mean, Govan, yeah. it's probably your turn. Yeah, I'm going to um, take, take, up, take up a bit of that because um, but, but there's, a, there's an element, element of truth in this and people are um, under, understandably worried about um, radical Islamism and what it means for all of our societies. And what for, what, for that matter, it means for societies in the Middle East that are being um, destroyed by that kind of ideology. If you look at um, even the pictures coming out from Mosul, uh, the reason the reason that's a, that city has been completely destroyed has been um, because um, of ISIS take, taking it over and imposing a reign of terror upon it, and it then having to be um, liberated from that from that reign of terror. And 
we are dealing with a world in which um, there has been for you know, 60 or 70 years a um, growth in Islamist revivalist teaching and utopianism and people, people saying that if only, if only you interpret the Quran in exactly the same way that we, we interpret the Quran, um, then um, you will get um, the reign of justice and paradise on earth. It's, it's most similar, actually, to um, communist ideology 30 or 40 years ago. They say we have the absolute answers and we're willing to um, kill people to get, get, get there. And as long as that kind of phenomenon is happening in the Middle East, um, it's going to be part of that um, is going to be reflected um, here. And it's, it's something that we are going to have to deal with, but it's also something that particularly actually this um, last um, seven years of the Conservative and Coalition government have been get, um, getting a grip on. And it's now much, it's much clearer that people are able to distinguish between saying, um, yes, we want a society where we have freedom of religion, where Muslims are welcome, where we can um, all have certain basic principles of um, parliamentary democracy, freedom and equality. But that means we must have a much more frank <coughs> conversation about different kinds of theological beliefs. And we can't hide behind saying uh, people claiming that it is uh, they should get immunity for things just because something is their religious belief. Okay. Um, would anyone else like to come in on that? Or should we just take... Yeah, I took, so um, I'm afraid we've got time for one last question. Uh, the gentleman in the black shirt who's been very patient. So, so, so the question is, um, is there a connection, what's the connection between uh, religion and immigration and should there, should there be more of one? Well, <clears throat> I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think you're, that term you used at the end, which is an Ernest Gellner term, counter-entropic. So one of the things is if you, you have immigrants who have a strong religious identity that's different from the whole society, the chances of that group assimilating are low. I mean, that is, we, we do see that in the data. Um, so that, I guess, makes it relevant in, in some ways. I mean, I think if you're talking about the host society, the majority, where religion has been declining, at least in terms of practice, uh, but still remains an important symbolic reference point for what it means. So anyhow, uh, you're pointing at this side, so you want them to answer. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to um, answer something about Ireland, actually, because Ireland had as well as Britain, a huge influx of Eastern European immigration at exactly the same time that um, Britain did. But, but in its political discourse, dealt with it very, very differently. Um, and you, you, you may, you know, people would joke at the time and say there were an awful lot of, you know, white, football-loving, pork-eating, uh, church-going um, people arrived in Ireland. What's the difference from the local population? And the answer is the local population didn't go to church anymore. Um, whereas people from, from Poland and so on did, did, go, did um, come and re, re, refill the churches. But the, where they have a different, different um, experience, not so much immigration, but they tended to associate immigration with good economic times and immigration with bad, bad economic times. And where, you know, we, we all left Ireland when things were going badly, and then we might go back when th <laughs> things were going well. Well, I, I guess we'll have to see how the Brexit negotiations go. Um, I'm really sorry, but we have run out of time. So before I ask you to thank our speakers, can I just get a final vote on on their performance, really? Uh, has, anyone, has, has anyone's mind been changed? So, so those who agree with this side of the... Uh, and those who agree with this side. 
which proves that debate probably doesn't change very much. But uh, <laughs> but if if, if 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 anything, we're all we're all leaning in a bit more of a, a, a closed and an open mood. So um, thank you very very much, and I'd like you to join me in thanking our speakers: Nikki Morgan, Gavin Welsh, Sundar Kapwala, and Eric Kaufman. Thank you.